Um, tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about, or a lot about, uh, six ways to meditate. And the reason for this is because um, I want to kind of offer a bit of a map uh, or a model to help orient us to how we're practicing. Because on this retreat, as you may have noticed, we're offering a lot of different instructions, a lot of techniques. We're doing the social meditation in the afternoon. We're offering guided practices. And then, of course, you all have um, been exposed to a tremendous number of different approaches and techniques and uh, ways of training your heart and mind. And so here we are with all of this huge swath of information and things that we're putting into practice, this huge plurality of practices and approaches and philosophies. And it can get confusing. You know, it can get very disorienting. How do I practice? What do I do? Um, and how does this all connect with what's most important to me? How does it connect to what's most important to us all? These six ways that I'm going to present, which um, in brief, and you see this on your handout, this is the visual uh, orientation to the six ways. Uh, each of the circles here uh, represents one of the ways. So in the top left, you'll see a circle with a small dot in the center. Uh, this is concentration. So I'll be talking about concentration. Uh, right next to it, to the right, looks like kind of a starry night, is uh, the mindfulness way. So we'll be talking about mindfulness. And then there's heartfulness. I'll let you guess which one that is. Uh, inquiry, straight across, the question mark. Inquiry meditation. Um, if you go over to the bottom right, the cloud floating. This is uh, representing awareness meditation. And then to the bottom left, the tree. This is embodiment practice. So concentration, mindfulness, heartfulness, inquiry, awareness, and embodiment. These are the six ways that, um, that Emily and I have sort of been teaching for the last several years. And we came up with this model, not because we thought we should come up with a model, um, but actually because, although I like coming up with models, but actually because uh, we had been practicing and training for the last, I don't know, couple decades and doing a lot of different kinds of things like I'm sure you all are and we were training in the insight meditation tradition and with different teachers and they were all teaching different approaches and they had studied with different teachers in Thailand and Burma and India and so we were getting all of this different information from this one tradition and then we were going out and we were studying Zen and going on Zen sessions and learning in that tradition um, and we were also, as Emily mentioned before, at Naropa University, which is a, uh, was founded by a, a Tibetan Buddhist named Chagyam Trungpa. Um, so this is the sort of Tibetan slash Shambhala uh, approach. And so we were steeped in that as well and training in that approach. And, and then doing a bunch of other stuff. I mean, just, you know, experimenting, exploring, trying things out. And so after doing that training, we started to realize, well, it's confusing to talk more generally about our experience 
because there are all these different approaches and they have different names. There's Vipassana and Shamatha and Dzogchen and Mahamudra and Shikantaza. And like, it's like, okay, first of all, what? what? <laughs> and second of all, okay, how do we translate that into like the language we would use? And, and, and the second question we had was, um, how do all these things relate? And because we saw that there were connections, both Emily and I, you know, talked endlessly about the connections and, and sort of how interesting it was that across these different traditions, they had developed really similar kinds of techniques, um, different techniques, but had similar aims. And so we started to kind of look at all the sort of practices we'd done, and we started to sort of feel and see this pattern emerging from our own experience that there were these different ways to practice, and they were distinct. Uh, they had something to offer that was their own, and yet they were all part of this larger contemplative and meditative training, um, and they all related to each other. Um, that's, that's the reason here you'll see in this graphic, they are the separate nodes, if you will, separate ways, and yet they, there's ways in which they can all connect. Um, and I'll talk more about that. Uh, first, I want to just go through and talk just a little bit about each of the six ways. And then after that, I want to talk a little bit about how to work with the ways together, um, how to combine practices, how to think about how to practice um, when we have such a huge amount of choice available to us. And it seems fitting here, and I I'll almost always start with concentration. As Emily mentioned, this is sort of foundational, right? Um, if we can't focus, it's very hard to do anything else. And so training and concentration, which for me is the practice of bringing attention to a single point, whether that is a small point or a large point, bringing attention to a point, being able to be with the experience of our choosing. And why do we need to do this? Um, well, I mean, I think you all know, but uh, we need to do this because our mind is quite fragmented. Our experience is everywhere. Um, the untrained mind has a hard time gathering and collecting its full potential in one place. And so we train in concentration on gathering, collecting, all the fragments of our attention to defragment our minds, to bring everything together to that one point. And there's a simple but not easy mechanism by which that works. Uh, I call it the feedback loop of concentration. You all have been practicing it all day, so you'll recognize this. Um, the first point of the feedback loop, if you think about it being like a circle, that kind of feeds back on itself, different points in the circle. The first point is where we direct our attention to this point, to the object, to the subject of our meditation, directing. The next point is we try to sustain our attention with the object, to be with it. Um, at some point, our mind wanders, we refragment, uh, we get caught up in something, and often it's feelings and thoughts. Uh, we get caught up in our own storying mind, in our own imaginings. It can also be physical pain or something else that is grabbing our attention. 
um, that also comes up. And then usually we build a story around that. <laughs> but the basic practice is to direct, sustain. The mind wanders. That happens. We can't avoid that. At some point, we wake up to the fact that it's wandered. We see, oh, I'm not with the meditation object anymore. I'm not doing what I thought I was <laughs> trying to do here, what I intended to do. Instead, I'm off. And at that point, we recognize that we've wandered. And the next point is coming back full circle. We redirect attention back with the object, back with our um, chosen experience to help us stabilize and cultivate, develop this powerful attention. As I said, we're bringing it to a single point. And it's interesting when I say single point, I immediately kind of have my hands up in front of me, you know, like it's this thing in front of me. And, and that is actually, I think, how it usually starts for most people. We start with a very simple object like our breath or a visual object. Um, there are many meditation objects. Uh, in the early Buddhist tradition, they taught 40 objects of meditation. And that's just scratching the surface, really. The breath is just one. Uh, one thing we can focus on to train attention. It's really good. Uh, it's a great thing to focus on for a lot of reasons. But in the beginning, our attention is usually very sort of narrow uh, or small. We might be paying attention to the breath at the nostrils or a small visual object. Um, and what we're doing in the beginning is just trying to be with this, this object and just trying to stay with it for a while. Uh, and there's two... For me, there's two dimensions of concentration that are worth talking about and exploring as we develop in this practice, in this way. Uh, one is that um, as we were with our object, as we're with the breath, we start to eventually start to gain some stability. We start to wander less, to be able to sustain our attention more. We stabilize with the object. We become closer to it. We kind of, it starts to become enjoyable, can... Um, and it stabilizes. We really lock in to our meditative object. The other thing that happens, and this is what makes concentration practice challenging, is that once we have it down with our object, and once we've got, kind of been able to focus on a single point, then the point, the object, our tension grows. Um, it's like, okay, this is old hat. I got this. Let's up the challenge level. And it's almost like our organism does this by itself. And so once we start to stabilize, then you might have noticed, then we often destabilize. It feels like we lost our concentration. Um, like all of the gathering and collecting has dispersed. But what in fact is happening is that our tension is getting bigger. Um, and this process continues. It gets bigger, and then we have to learn how to stabilize with this broader scope of attention. You know, with a breath, you know, instead of focusing on a really fine point of breathing, maybe we start to notice more happening around the breath. That the breath isn't just happening in the small point. It's happening in a broader space. And so this is the kind of the, the practice of concentration to gather, collect in a small space, and then the space opens. It's like, okay, you got that, trying to open. And then that keeps happening over and over and over again. And I, I, I don't know if there's an end uh, to the practice of concentration, but I do know that there's a, there is a point at which one can be resting with one point that includes 
all points of your experience. So that one pointed attention includes the whole space and field of your experience. Our attention can rest with it all. Be with everything. And that is a very powerful kind of concentration. Like a powerful telescope, writes Jack Kornfield, the concentrated mind can open us to vast mystical states, including realms of light, visions, rapture, and illumination. Like polishing a lens on a microscope, concentration can allow us to see more deeply into the body and mind. So this is the other thing about concentration. It, it, Concentration practice, the way of concentration, is what opens people often into very, um, as he said, mystical states or transpersonal states or altered states of consciousness. Um, if you really want to have some trippy experiences, concentration is the way to go. And uh, holotropic breath work, I hear. <laughs> um, and then the other thing, um, this is very traditional in the Buddhist uh, approach, is that we can then take that concentrated mind, that stable, open, flexible attention, and we can apply it to investigate, uh, investigating our experience. Actually, we can apply it to anything, um, but here we're applying it to noticing what this body and mind is like. Which brings us to the second way of meditation, uh, mindfulness practice. And here I have a slightly, and we have a slightly different um, definition of mindfulness than, say, John Kabat-Zinn um, and others. It's similar, um, but slightly different. And I know many of you in the uh, Mindfulness Teacher Program have been looking at lots of different definitions of mindfulness, so you can just add this to a list. So we define mindfulness as noticing what you're sensing in real time. Noticing what you're sensing in real time. And the first thing I want to point out is just the noticing and sensing part. So we used to, we used to define it. Version 1.0 of our definition was noticing what you're noticing as you notice it. But then we started, I started to realize after I saw uh, Dan Siegel talk at a mindfulness conference, and he made this very interesting distinction between noticing and sensing, that in fact that's more of what we were doing, noticing what we're sensing. So the noticing is the part of our attention, our awareness, that can kind of identify what's happening. And if I'm noticing the room around me, I'm noticing people, I'm noticing colors, I'm noticing the air conditioner and hearing that. It, but sensing is more directly related to just the bare sensory experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, etc. So when I'm sensing, it's very hard for me to describe exactly what I'm experiencing um, because I'm just experiencing it. So mindfulness is the practice of noticing what we're sensing. We're actually able to cognize what it is that we're experiencing, but we're tuned into our experience instead of just thinking. Here Dan Siegel talks about this distinction. He said there's a huge debate about what mindfulness is. Is it sensing or noticing? 
intention on focusing on the breath requires differentiation of noticing versus sensing. You use the noticing circuit to disengage the distraction and then use the sensing circuit to re-engage your focus. So that's interesting. He just was talking about the difference between noticing and sensing. We use the noticing circuit, as he says, to, to recognize that we're distracted. There's a recognition, a cognition. Oh, there's distraction. I notice that I'm distracted. I notice that I'm wandering. I notice that I'm thinking. Okay, that helps me disengage. Now, how do we reconnect with the object? Well, we can't just think breath. We have to feel breath. We have to be noticing the direct sensory experience of breath. Otherwise, we're just thinking about the breath. And it's so easy, right, when we start thinking about the breath, to start thinking about something else. Um, so we're sensing the experience. And then what happens as we begin to do this, as we begin to develop the capacity to notice what we're sensing? There's seeing, there's thinking, there's fear, there's allowing, there's breathing, there's planning, there's shifting. One thing, as, you, as you're hearing as I'm practicing mindfulness, is that we notice that things change. You know, things don't stay the same for very long. Even if we use the same word or label to describe what we're experiencing, the experience itself has changed many times over. When I teach noting meditation, the first thing almost everyone says is, well, that was great, but as I was noting it, I couldn't keep up with everything I was experiencing. I, I couldn't get a note for every single moment. I'm like, yeah. That's right, because the notes, um, the words that we use, these are representations of our experience. They're an attempt to compress down into a single word, this very complex, changing, flowing, fluxing experience. So that's one of the first things we notice, that everything is changing at the sensory level. It's only concepts that seem to stay the same. This illusion of movement and solidity is like a movie, writes Sayada Upandita. To ordinary perception, it seems full of characters and objects, all the semblances of a world. But if we slow the movie down, we'll see that it is actually composed of separate static frames of film. I love this analogy, looking at the movie of our life looking at the individual moments, the discrete experiences that make it up. If we actually get down to that level and we can be with the changing sensory level, seeing, tasting, touching, then we start to see, oh, like it's not, it's not the same as the reality of concepts of thought where everything seems solid and real, where I seem real, where you seem real. Uh, we could call this the relative reality. At the, this level, it's not like that. Saying the same thing in a different way, Ellen Langer in her book Mindfulness, she says a very basic and mindless error that we often make is to take the names we give to products and things as the things themselves. 
And she also writes, mindlessness sets in when we rely too rigidly on categories and distinctions created in the past. So confusing our ideas and our concepts with what they point to, this is one of the things that mindfulness practice helps us do less. And to let go of our ideas and concepts, to be able to recognize them is the first step to letting them go so that we can actually be more with this moment and what it's called for, rather than bringing our preconceptions, some of which can be helpful, but bringing them and forcing reality to look the way we think it should. That's a recipe for disaster. Uh, And that's also the cause of much of our own suffering. And this is one of the other things we see when we start to practice mindfulness. That when we are holding on, when there is grasping to concepts, when when we are at war with our experience and we think we know better than it, or better than life, how this should be, then there is a sort of existential rope burn. And this feeling that something is missing, something is wrong, something's lacking. What in this moment is truly lacking? Hearing is like this. Breathing is like this. When I can just drop down into the sensory level to just feeling what's here, the idea of lack disappears. There's thinking. There's feeling. There's tightening. There's quivering. It's like that. So when we practice mindfulness, we're seeing how it is. We're seeing how it is to move between these two levels of concepts. to have this prefrontal cortex and be able to abstract, to think abstractly, which is amazing, Um, and yet to also be be living in a physical world and having this very basic um, body. It's not basic in a way. It's really amazing and complex, but the input, what's coming in, the sensory experience is very simple in a way. And when we start to drop into the sensory level and really see the way it is, then we begin to deconstruct or to break apart our old ideas. And two of the main ones that get sort of start to shake are these basic ideas of myself and the world and all you all, (laughs) everyone else in it. We start to deconstruct ourselves in the world. And this is what the early Buddhists, I think, were pointing to when they talked about non-self or selflessness or egolessness. It's not that we lose our sense of identity. It's just that we see that that identity is constructed. It's made up of more basic aspects or elements of our experience. Um, and it's, uh, it's great that we have this higher order capacity to think I am this way and that way and 
um, I've got these experiences and I, you know, I have this understanding. I mean, these, these are useful. I mean, we have to operate at that level. Um, but we don't have to believe all of our thoughts about ourselves. And we don't have to believe all of our thoughts about the world. We can begin to see what the world is made of, to see what the self is made of at the sensory level. And in doing that, uh, what I found is that there's a tremendous amount of freedom that opens up because we're no longer at war with our experience. It's just like this. And this isn't always pleasant uh, or like, you know, always not like, yay, I'm having this experience. <laughs> uh, but that's a thought. That's a concept. Like, oh, well, which experience should I be having? Which experience is better to have? Don't know. The next way uh, is the way of heartfulness. Which we define as um, inclining the mind toward opening the heart. Inclining the mind toward opening the heart. In the Buddhist tradition, there are a set of practices called the Brahma Viharas, which you probably, many of you heard of. Um, translation there, the divine abodes. My favorite is the sublime attitudes. Um, and these are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And these are really, in a way, qualities of heart, um, qualities of an open heart, of an awakened heart. And there are a lot of really beautiful practices in the, in the Buddhist tradition for cultivating and developing these qualities of heart, inclining the mind toward opening in these ways. I like to think of it as set, setting the GPS coordinates for the heart, you know, having a direction that we're trying to move toward to open to. And there's lots of other qualities you know, that we can develop um, as well. We can develop gratitude, generosity, awe, happiness, ease. I think what's interesting, no matter what quality of heart I've worked on opening, and I've, I've seen this with others as well. Um, it seems like when we incline toward opening the heart, what we often find instead of the open heart is we find all the obstacles to the open heart. We find everything, in fact, that's standing in the way of us being able to be kind, compassionate, caring, generous. Um, in a way, to me, it's it's kind of like by having that intention, I want to be this way. It's sort of, in, it's like an invitation for all the ways we're not that way to begin to surface and to be known. And that actually, in the beginning of the practice, I can feel like, well, I'll make, I'm doing something wrong because I'm trying to develop loving kindness and instead I'm sitting here fuming, pissed. Well, interestingly, that's the thing that stands in the way of being kind. <laughs> So we've got to work with that. Um, we've got to actually open to that too, um, to be patient with that, to find an open heart, um, an open-hearted orientation toward all the places in us that are closed down and constricted and hurt and wounded. 
So that's the practice of heartfulness, which we'll be doing in this retreat together some more. Um, so these first three, concentration, mindfulness, and heartfulness, that's what we're focusing on here in the instructions on the retreat. Other ways of practicing that, that we also teach in different contexts, and I think are really important, uh, inquiry meditation. Using a question as a prompt for discovery. When we practice inquiry, we're working with a question. Rainer Maria Rilke writes, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions, he writes, to a young poet. So how do we live these questions? And, and something I want to say about the questions, in inquiry practice, we're working with questions that aren't answerable. It's not like, what is 2 plus 2? That's, that's an answerable question. I mean, you can debate it at some sort of high-level, abstract, philosophical thing, but it's not, no, it's 4. Come on. But the inquiry questions here are questions that are they take us somewhere else. They're not rational questions. Or they can be answered rationally, but they can't be fully answered at that level. One of my favorite questions uh, as an example is, what is this? What is this? Well, what do we mean by this? <laughs> you know? This what? Exactly. What is this? That's not really answerable. Yet that's one of the most important Zen koans in the, uh, in the Zen tradition, uh, which works a lot with inquiry questions. Um, I did a small amount of Zen koan work uh, with a teacher named David Loy, and I remember just trying to figure out how the koan thing worked and you know, how, how to do it. And I was working on this sort of classic koan, what is the sound of one hand? Clapping is how it's normally said, but the way I was working, what is the sound of one hand? Okay, well, what is the sound of one hand? Or as David said, he's like, why so timid? <laughs> I was like, because I'm trying to impress you, basically. <laughs> Another question that I really loved working with uh, appropriately is, what is love? What is love? You can work with questions that bring us into these other ways, like heartfulness. What is love? When I was working with this question on a long retreat, uh, it was a month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. Uh, I was there with Emily, and we were, I was doing an inquiry retreat. Um, so I was just working with questions. And I was working with Jack and Trudy, and going in and interviewing with them every couple days, and they were giving me these questions. And the first question was, who am I? I was like, oh, okay, I know that one, I, I like that one. 
<laughs> I came back a couple days later, like, okay, here's your next question. What am I? Keep asking who am I, now add what am I. I'm like, ooh, that's cool. I go, what am I? And then the next day I come in, what is love? Like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I start to work with that question. And um, what I found initially was that I'd ask the question, inquire, what is love? And all of a sudden I'd feel all these great feelings of connection and love. And I imagine the people I cared about. And I just started feeling this great warmth. And I was like, oh, yeah. And after a couple, you know, a day or two, uh, it went away. <laughs> and instead, when I asked the question, what is love? All this anger and frustration and confusion, like the opposite of what was arising before. And I was like, dang. I was like, I must be doing this wrong. <laughs> so I kept, kept going back and it kept happening. I was like, wait, this is weird. And I stopped at a certain point because it was so frustrating because I thought like, I should be experiencing this like, open-hearted warmth and connection. And I stopped and I said, how would I work with this if I were doing mindfulness practice, Vipassana practice? Because I've done that, you know, I'd done that for thousands of hours and I could like, knew how to deal with anything that could come up. And the moment I asked the question and considered it, I realized oh, I would just be with the sensations and notice them and feel the fear, anger, whatever. And in that moment, I realized that's love. That also is love. Like just the capacity to be with what is, that's love. And I had this idea in my mind that I had to feel this way and look this way. And as a result, I wasn't actually open, open to being love, to loving what was coming up. So these inquiry questions, this practice, it, it's designed to bring us to this point where we reach the edges of what we know or what we think we know to actually invite us into a state of not knowing or as Trudy Goodman's first teacher, the Korean Zen master, Sun Sanim said, this is straight from Trudy's mouth, don't know, mind. That's how he'd say it. <laughs> he'd say it in that way. Don't know. So that's what inquiry is designed to do, bring us into this don't know mind. Who here has watched Mad Men? Anyone? Mad Men fan, some of you? So there's uh, one of the main characters is a fellow named Don Draper. He's an ad executive in the 50s and 60s. And he has this protege, a young woman named Peggy Olson. And in this episode, I want to share a little excerpt which gets at not knowing. Um, Peggy's sort of preparing research for this uh, pitch they're going to do to a potential client and she's getting Don all the stuff he needs to make the pitch and apparently it's a big client and so she's kind of stressing out she's like she says to Don so you're going to pitch the hell out of my shitty idea and I'm going to fail and Don says Peggy I'm here to help you do whatever you want to do Peggy says well how am I supposed to know Don that's a tough one he says tough one. Peggy responds, you love this. And thinking he's getting pleasure out of saying this to her. And Don says, not really. I want you to feel good about what you're doing, but you'll never know. That's the job. Peggy says, what's the job? Living in the not knowing. 
Don says, living in the not knowing. And that's the job of inquiry. That's the job of really what we're doing here. We're living in the not knowing, at the edge of what we know and don't know. The next uh, way to meditate is we call awareness. And we define or describe awareness as simply being. Simply being. Pretty simple. Not easy, again. How do we simply be? This way is unique in that it isn't something we do. All the other practices, concentration, mindfulness, inquiry, heartfulness, and body, there's some sort of doing, intentional doing involved. Like we're intentionally trying to bring attention somewhere, or notice something, or cultivate something. With awareness practices, the intention is to be, to rest in presence, you could say. Suzuki Roshi, um, early Zen teacher who was one of the people to bring Zen to, the, to America, he wrote in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, that everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. <coughs> that everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. And here by everything, I think what he means is all of our experience. You know, not everything is obviously included in our conscious awareness. Jupiter is not there, except as a concept. But everything that we experience is arising in your awareness. See if for a moment you can stop being aware. See if you can stop hearing me, stop feeling or sensing. Anyone? Any luck? <laughs> yeah. What that points to, to me, is that awareness isn't something we can do. If we could do it, then we could turn it off. There is no need for awareness to turn anywhere, writes Tony Packer. It's here. Everything is here in awareness. When there is a waking up from fantasy, there is no one who does it. Just this. It's one way of pointing to awareness. Just this. Just this experience. Sometimes it's too simple. We overlook the simplicity. And we, we think, oh, it has to be something else. Keyword. Think. <laughs> In the Tibetan tradition, there's a whole way of practicing called Dzogchen. And the idea is to just be enlightened, to just be awake, to just be done. They call that, when we wake up to that already doneness, that already awake quality of simple awareness, they call that rigpa, which some, translates sometimes as primordial awareness. Primordial awareness. I like that. Pointing to 
the quality of awareness which hasn't isn't conditioned by experience it's not something that's arising like other experiences it's that which reflects and is aware of and as our experience it's not a thing actually because if it's a thing then we start to look for it we think it's somewhere we start to try to find it we seek for it and then we miss it because it is our own nature as beings that are awake and aware From another point of view, looking at awareness from the Sufi tradition, Hafiz writes, just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God, from love, is the hardest work in this world. The last way of meditation that I want to mention is the practice of embodiment. Um, this is a way that we added uh, a couple years ago. Uh, before it was, we had five ways. And then we we're like, oh, there's a sixth. And actually, there are many more. There's plenty that Emily and I don't know. Um, the practice of embodiment, for me, is the practice of inhabiting the body of coming home to the body, of being in the body. Not even being in the body, because that implies there's something separate from the body that's being in it. But actually, true embodiment is just this physical, simple experience. Judith Blackstone writes in Trauma and the Unbound Body, inhabiting the body is not the same as being aware of the body. It is not a top-down experience. Inhabiting the body means that we live within our body, that we're present throughout the whole internal space of the body. It means that we feel that we are made of consciousness everywhere in our body. Similar to awareness, huh? Interesting. But awareness can be disembodied. That's how I practiced it, actually, uh, for the first several years. And then at a certain point, I found I couldn't do that anymore. I I couldn't actually sit anymore, literally. I'd go to sit, and I suddenly find I was like slouching off my cushion, (laughs) and my body just would not let me. My mind, mind, I was like, I know how to meditate. I want to meditate. And my body was like, no more, brother. You got to come back and be here. No more going off into awareness, into disembodied states of bliss. You got to come and be here in this corporeal form. <laughs> you got to deal with this. Shit. <laughs> that was almost 10 years ago, by the way, and I'm still saying that. So. Some good examples of uh, embodiment practices that I, that I think are, are really interesting. Um, Lisa just led you into Qigong. Uh, which is very much an embodied practice. Yoga is an embodied practice when it's done properly. Um, Shamanic traditions have all kinds of practices 
um, many of them earth-based, um, that are very much embodiment practices. One, one of my friends was telling me about um, this practice he did where he was um, literally buried in the buried underground. Uh, has anyone done that practice or heard of that before? Yeah, interesting. It's a, it's it's a it's a traditional shamanic practice, and literally they just dig a hole out, put you in, uh, up to your neck, and then they <laughs> fill up the hole, and you just be in the earth. You let the earth become your teacher, and you can't get away. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can get out, but it takes time, and it's cold. And he was telling me, he was telling me, he's like, I was sitting in the earth, just laying in there, and all of a sudden, I just started feeling this contraction, tightness, and then all of a sudden, this release, and I'm crying, and thinking about my ancestors and just releasing into the earth and feeling this deep sense of freedom. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's this simple. All I had to do is just get in the ground and throw dirt on me. (laughs) (laughs) Reggie Ray, who's a Tibetan, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of Chagrim Trungpa and also teaches what he calls somatic meditation, which is another word for embodiment. He writes, to be awake, to be enlightened, is to be fully and completely embodied. To be fully embodied means to be at one with who we are in every respect, including our physical being, our emotions, and the totality of our karmic situation the whole of our life. It is to be entirely present to who we are and to the journey of our own becoming. I like that definition of awakening. And in embodiment practice, that one thing I want to mention too is that not only is it about awakening and being present fully with our life as it is, but it's also a very powerful practice or set of practices for being able to heal deep wounds that are held in the body. Um, I know many of you have experience in therapy or are therapists yourself, so you probably know there are somatic therapies, things like somatic experiencing or haikomi that work directly with the body and use the, use the awareness in the body to help unwind and heal old patterns that are no longer serving and supporting us. And so it can be a very powerful aid, this way of meditation in healing as well as in awakening. So that's just a kind of brief overview of these six ways, um, just to give you a sense of the, the the differences, the distinctions. And then as you can see in this graphic, you know, we see these things as also being very connectable. One of the reasons we wanted to kind of identify what are these different approaches is so we could then uh, begin to figure out how we could construct new approaches. If we can see what the elements of meditation are, then perhaps we can recombine those elements in new ways, which is hard to do because um, for thousands of years, people have been doing that very thing. 
Um, and so there's already lots of great examples of people combining these different orientations and approaches into very interesting practices. And then how I like to think of it is when you start to, if you imagine each of these ways as a kind of like a, a musical note, when you start to play the notes together in a certain combination, you can also get kind of harmony. Um, in the insight meditation tradition, where we first started, and this is reflected in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which it arose from, and it's still reflected in the mindfulness movement now. There's really an emphasis on concentration, starting there, developing stability of attention, then mindfulness, what they call vipassana, starting to break experience down and notice what it's made of to see its characteristics, and then heartfulness, um, to, to open and incline the mind toward opening the heart, to practicing the Brahma Viharas. These are the three practices that are really emphasized in that tradition. And it's not that the other ones aren't there as well, but they're not, they're not as front and center. And so what you end up getting, for me, is this sort of combination, this chord. I think of it as like the insight chord, or the, uh, um, the insight approach. It's got this certain harmony, concentration, mindfulness, heartfulness. In the Zen tradition, which, which I also studied in, the typical uh, unfolding of the practices, first you start with breath counting stabilize your mind, be able to count the breath. Work with koans, work with questions, go through this koan system, uh, and then practice just sitting, practice just being. Concentration, inquiry, awareness. In the Mahamudra tradition of Tibet, one starts with concentration, then moves to mindfulness, and then finishes in effortless open awareness. Concentration, mindfulness, awareness. So interesting, each of the traditions, as after we started to kind of formulate our own kind of map, we started to see that these traditions, in a way, could be looked at as kind of uh, combinations of, of approaches that come together to form a kind of quality, uh, a kind of harmony. And what I found very interesting is that working with people who are meditators, serious meditators, is that they may have no awareness of, the, of these traditions and, their, and, the, and the, um, the details of them. And yet, working with folks and watching their practice unfold, I've seen many, many times that sometimes people have, they, they tend to incline toward some of these combinations. They tend to be kind of like Zen people, even though they haven't, like they don't even know anything about Zen per se. Um, that just like the way that they orient. So I think what's interesting here in thinking about these different ways and how to practice um, is to figure out how can we practice in a way that both resonates with our own inclinations and capacities, and that, that, that fits, um, and also ways of practice that actually connect with and will support our deepest aims in practice. Like, why are we here? What are we actually trying to do? One of the, the most common things I see in the, in the spiritual landscape when I look out, that, that really sat, it, it upsets me and it saddens me at the same time, um, is I see many people going into traditions and they have some intention, some reason that brings them there that's their own. You know, some kind of suffering, some kind of challenge, some kind of aspiration. 
and they don't necessarily form, we wouldn't formulate it in Buddhist terms, right? Or in any other traditional terms. They don't have that language. And then often what happens is people walk into a, an approach and they're sort of told, well, this awakening thing is what you're looking for. And here's how you do it. And they sort of start to unload and download all the, you know, this is what you do. And one thing I've, I've noticed is when people get into a tradition or approach that doesn't actually connect with their deepest intentions, and they try to like, have the awakening that some other person had instead of having their awakening, um, then it's like wearing a clothes that don't fit. You know, it just feels off. It just feels, it's not that you can't, people can't learn things from practicing those techniques, but it's like we've got to learn how to see the questions that drive us and try to figure out how to respond and answer those questions, how to live those questions, um, instead of living the questions of whatever spiritual leader started that approach or that tradition. The Buddhist question was, how do I put an end to suffering? Ramana Maharshi's question was, who am I? Your question might be, how can I love more fully and completely? Now, whatever your question is, I think it's, it's, it's so useful to be constantly checking back in with our intention, our motivation. Why are we here? Why are we really here? And then once that we kind of come into contact with our deeper intention, it's easier to kind of navigate and orient to all these different ways of practicing. Because some of those ways are, are, are better designed and better constructed to help with those questions. This is what I found. So that's one answer to the question, well, how do we practice with so much choice? Uh, there's a book called The Paradox of Choice. And the, the basic thesis is when you have a ton of choice, and you, you, you go into the, to the restaurant and the menu's like 10 pages, uh, what happens? Yeah, it's like, uh. <laughs> It's like I either go to the thing I had that one time and I just have that every time, uh, or I get paralyzed and overwhelmed and you know, kind of freak out a little bit. I've seen Emily do this many, many times. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> um, so the paradox of choice is that when we have more choices, it, it, it actually, it's harder to know what to do uh, oftentimes. Um, and so one way, of, one way of solving that is to take a fundamentalist approach and you know, just be like, I'm just going to do this and only this matters and everything else is bullshit. Um, I've done that. Um, that's great at narrowing the field of possibilities, but it's not great if you're doing the wrong thing <laughs> or you're doing something that's not quite uh, workable for you. Some things can be workable for a while and then they're not anymore, at which point it's good to be able to switch. So that to me is, is the heart of the question when we're practicing. What is our intention? Why are we really doing this? And then what approach or orientation might serve that? You know, what can I learn from all the humans that have come before me um, and what they've learned? And sometimes, 
that oftentimes, even if we're doing a practice or working with techniques that are helpful and are connecting and are leading us in the direction that we want to go, sometimes we still have to break off um, from the tradition and get into uncharted territory of our own experience where there is no map. At least not yet. We have to walk it before we can make any sense of it. And that's where, to me, this whole practice of meditation really comes alive. It's also when I was talking about not knowing. It's the space of not knowing. One of my favorite inquiry questions, what is meditation? After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.